Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. Well, U.S. stocks ended the week with marginal gains. In fact, the Dow Jones was up only about, what, 12 points on the week. The real action happened overseas. Foreign markets were strong, particularly emerging markets that continue to smoke the performance of the U.S. stock market so far year to date, confounding the experts, right? Because the experts thought Trump's making America great again would mean it would be great for U.S. stocks but it would be a problem for emerging markets. And thus far, uh, emerging markets have been the beneficiaries of the rally to a much greater degree than have domestic stocks. Although the action, uh, the week was not really the stock markets, but in the currency markets, in the gold market, the dollar dropped by over 1%, despite the fact that the Fed raised rates. In fact, this is one of the worst weeks for the dollar in about four to six months. I forget exactly how long. Gold was up about 25 bucks, about 2% on the week. Hey, I thought gold was supposed to fall when the Fed hikes rates. Instead, the Fed hiked rates and the price of gold rose. Now, again, a lot of this is buy the rumor, sell the fact, right? Gold sold off on the anticipation of this rate hike, and it rallied on the realization of what the market had anticipated. So that is not really surprising. But if you go back to the very first rate hike, that really marked the bottom in gold. Ever since the Fed started hiking rates, gold has been rising. The decline in gold took place when people anticipated those rate hikes. By the time they realized the hikes, gold began to rise. But I think what's going to really accelerate the price of gold going up is the fact that rates are not going to rise nearly as much as the market anticipated. And so what has been built into the gold price as far as rate hikes is not going to materialize. The rumors were exaggerated. The fact is not going to bear out the rumor, especially since inflation has been accelerating faster than the markets perceived. In fact, you know, they had a a consumer uh, confidence numbers that came out that showed that inflation expectations for consumers is like near a record low. And since the public is generally wrong about everything, 
right? The fact that the public believes that there's going to be no inflation is a pretty good indicator that there's about to be a lot of inflation. But the fact that inflation is going to be higher than both consumers and investors anticipated, that means these rate hikes deliver even more, uh, even less rather, in terms of real hikes than what they would have. Because if inflation is rising faster than rates, then rates are actually falling. And so as the markets begin to come to terms with the fact that higher nominal rates don't necessarily mean higher real rates, in fact, they mean lower real rates, that is going to accelerate the increase in the price of gold. And of course, eventually the markets are going to start anticipating the next rate cut. They're going to start anticipating QE4 because it's coming, just a question of when, but the markets are not going to wait to see the whites of the eyes of the rate cuts, right? Just like they anticipated the rate hikes, and the dollar began to rise and gold began to fall on anticipation of those hikes, gold is going to rise and the dollar is going to fall on anticipation of those cuts. And the question is, when are the markets going to start anticipating what should already be obvious? And, you know, maybe the Fed is going to help accelerate that process. In fact, you know, a lot of people, I see comments on my YouTube channels uh, you know, hey, you know, Peter, you're wrong, right? You said the Fed wasn't going to raise rates and see they raised them a third time. And so you were wrong about that. And yes, you know, I did not believe that the Fed would raise rates and they raised them anyway. But I also conceded that it was possible that they would raise rates. I just thought it was less likely that they would. But I also said that if they raised rates, it wouldn't matter that A, it was too little too late. And B, even if they raised rates, it wouldn't make the dollar go up and it wouldn't make gold fall. And I was exactly right about that because the rate hikes have not hurt the price of gold, nor have they helped the dollar. In fact, the only reason that the dollar is higher now than it was before the Fed's first rate hike is because Trump won the election. Prior to Trump winning, the dollar was actually lower than it was when the Fed hiked rates. So what caused the dollar to rally was not the Fed's rate hike. But the unexpected win by Donald Trump and the enthusiasm that that created for economic growth and the fact that now the Fed might not have to be as accommodative because we're going to have all this fiscal stimulus. And that's what caused the dollar to rally. But of course, all of this hype is not going to be uh, realized, right? The markets are wrong in all this anticipated great stuff that's going to happen. It is not going to happen. And so this Trump-inspired dollar rally is going to reverse and the dollar is going to sell off and its sell-off is going to gain momentum as the markets start to price in uh, higher inflation, lower real rates, and eventually rate cuts and, and QE4. But another area where I want to defend my forecast was that if you remember, there were two reasons that I thought the Fed would refrain from hiking rates. One was the stock market, right? I thought that if the Fed raised rates, that would hurt the stock market. And that's exactly what happened the first time they raised rates. They raised rates in December 2015 and the market tanked. And then the market backtracked. But I think what gave the Fed the confidence to raise rates in December last year and again in March was the rally in the stock market that happened because of Donald Trump. That provided the cover. Once the stock market started rallying, it kind of emboldened the Fed to think, hey, you know, maybe we can get away with a couple of rate hikes here because the markets are now more, more interested in Trump, right? Trump was trumping the rate hikes. So it created an environment where the Fed could raise rates 
and the market wouldn't tank because the markets thought all the benefits of tax cuts and deregulation and faster economic growth were going to be stronger than the negative effect of rising rates. So probably had um, Hillary Clinton won and the stock market not had this Trump rally, rates may still be uh, at 25 basis points. We may, ne- we may not have gotten the December hike and we, we may not have gotten the March hike. So the Fed was able to get these rate hikes in due to the market being lifted uh, by, by Trump. But also, I was taking the Fed at its word. Remember, I always pointed out that the Fed constantly reminded everybody that they were not on a preset course, right? That the rate hikes were not set in stone, that everything depended on their economic forecasts being accurate, right? If the economy evolved the way they believed, then rate hikes would be appropriate, right? That's what they said. Well, I kept saying, but the economy never evolves the way the Fed believes. They always overestimate economic growth, right? The economy is always weaker than they think. And therefore, if the Fed ends up being surprised because their rosy forecasts don't come true, if they really are data dependent, and if the data they depend on is worse than they anticipated, then I said, well, they have cover not to raise rates. And in fact, that's exactly what's happening, right? They had cover with the drop in forecasts for GDP, right? The Atlanta Fed was forecasting just 0.9% GDP in Q1, and the Fed raised rates anyway. You know, when the Fed raised rates last December, they thought economic growth in the first quarter would be over 3%. Now they think it's going to be under 1%. Well, it was based on that data. It was based on the belief that GDP growth would be 3%, that they said rate hikes would be appropriate. But now it's not even 1%. So why are they still appropriate? I think the main reason that the Fed is raising rates now, other than the fact that the stock market is enabling them to do so, is because they don't want to admit just yet that their forecasts were wrong. They still want to pretend that everything is on track. They still want to pretend that everything is going as well as they've been saying. And if they did not raise rates uh, this week, as everybody thought, it would have been an admission to the markets that the economy was weaker uh, than the Fed thought. And Janet Yellen, as I mentioned on my last podcast, actually pointed this out because she said she raised interest rates to send a message of confidence. That's what she wanted to do. The rate hike was meant to instill confidence. So it wasn't because the Fed thought the economy was strong enough to withstand it. It's because she thought the economy was so weak that the last thing she wanted to do was acknowledge the weakness. So she wanted to create a false sense of confidence by raising rates. And of course, by raising rates now, that means they have more rate cuts they can do once the economy rolls into recession, which it may do, uh, you know, within the next couple of quarters. And now the Fed will have a little bit more ammunition. And of course, the Fed is going to pretend that whatever caused this recession was totally beyond their control. And of course, nobody could have predicted it. It happened out of left field. Maybe they'll blame it on Trump. Maybe they'll blame it on something that Trump does. Who knows? Uh, But they're getting ready for it. And so I don't think I was wrong in saying that the Fed wouldn't hike because I said they wouldn't hike because I knew the economy would be much weaker than they thought it would be. And it was. I was right. Economic growth is much lower than what the Fed thought it was going to be. But they raised rates anyway. And I think the only reason they were able to do that was because of Trump winning the election, 
which propped up the stock market. Because if the stock market were falling, there would be no way that they would raise rates. And in fact, if this rally reverses, right, if the stock market starts to fall sharply over the next several months, then they are going to backtrack. Um, And of course, we're going to get a lot more economic data as well over the next several months. And I think that data is going to continue to be weaker than anticipated. Now, I wanted to follow up a little bit, too, on the border-adjusted tax and, again, address the idiotic notion that the border-adjusted tax is going to result in a you know 25% rise in the value of the dollar. I mean, some people say 20%, some say 25%. I think in order to fully offset the impact of a 20% uh, border-adjusted tax, you would need a 25% higher dollar to fully offset it, if you do the math. It's not 20%. You need 25%. Uh, and there are a lot of economists that say we're going to get a 25% uh, increase in um, in the value of the dollar. And of course, if that was the case, you could get rich, right? You could just go out right now and buy some call options on the, you know, or uh, put options rather on the euro or on the Japanese yen or on the Swiss franc or any currency. Uh, because if there's even a 50-50 shot that this border tax goes through, and that means that the dollar goes up to that degree, I mean, you will make a fortune on these put options because the premiums right now in currency put options do not reflect a 50% probability of a 25% rise in the value of the dollar. I mean, that would be a massive rise that would make fortunes for people who uh, bought puts. And of course, you know, if the the tax doesn't pass, well, you know, you just lose uh, the premium. But, you know, the upside is so much greater than the downside. Uh, So the markets obviously uh, don't share this belief, although it is possible that the dollar would be weaker were it not for some concerns that maybe these economists are actually right and, it, and we could get a rise in the dollar uh, if they had the border-adjusted tax. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about it. And again, forget about the fact, the whole premise, right, is that the border-adjusted tax is going to cause the dollar to rise because we are going to be subsidizing our exports and taxing our imports. So we're going to have more exports, fewer imports. That means the trade deficit is going to go down. And because the trade deficit goes down, the dollar goes up. Now, of course, then they say because the dollar goes up, the trade deficit will will go back up, and there will be no effect on the trade deficit from the border-adjusted tax. It'll just give a windfall to the U.S. government that costs the U.S. consumer nothing, which is complete nonsense. And of course, if you're basing your belief that the dollar is going to rise on a smaller trade deficit, but then you say the rising dollar will negate the trade benefits, and so the trade deficit won't shrink at all. Why is the dollar going up? If the trade deficit can be exactly the same, then why is the dollar going to go up? I mean, none of it even makes sense, right? But let's forget about all that. Let's just follow the logic of the border tax reducing our trade deficit, because I believe that will happen. I believe that if we have the border-adjusted tax, America's trade deficit will initially go down, right? Because imports will be more expensive. And if something is more expensive, you buy less of it, right? I mean, people don't have an unlimited amount of money. It's supply and demand. If foreign products cost more money, if they cost 20, 25% more, I'm going to buy fewer foreign products. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that I'm just going to go buy American products instead because the American products don't exist. So either I buy the foreign products or I don't buy anything. And so a lot of Americans will just buy nothing. Right? Or they'll just buy less. I mean, I, we, I have a, you know, a young daughter. I have an 11-month-old daughter, a 3-year-old son. We buy a lot of toys right, for the kids. Uh, we buy a lot of um, 
you know, baby products, car seats, uh, strollers, high chairs. Everything is made in China. I mean, or, or someplace. Nothing is made in America. And in fact, if I wanted to buy some of these things that were made in America, I do not think that they exist. And if they exist, they're a lot more than 25% more expensive than the ones that we're buying. And, I, the, and the same thing is going to happen with everybody who's buying stuff for their kids. And so if the, if the price of all that stuff goes up, then, you know, the kids are going to have to get by with less stuff. I mean, more people will buy used stuff, right? You know what I mean? So people are going to buy less. No question about it. Also, on the margin, we will export more. But I think the increased exports will take more time. It won't be immediate, right? Immediately, we'll start importing less because we can't afford it. But to export more, that requires capacity. That requires factories, more production. That's harder to come by. That's going to take some time to make the investments, to retrain the workers, to retool. Now, it's also possible that a producer who's selling goods domestically now could start selling the same goods and export them. Because if he exports the goods, he pays no taxes. So if you sell to an American, you pay a tax. But if you sell to a foreigner, you pay no tax. So that will create an incentive for me to try to find, or any business in America, to try to find foreign customers, which means the only way the American customer can compete is if you could raise your prices. So this will also cause, not only will uh, American consumers have to pay higher prices because of the bat, but they'll have to pay higher prices to encourage some businesses to sell domestically instead of export, because if they export, they pay no tax. So the immediate effects will be a lower standard of living, for uh, American citizens who will consume less and pay more for the things that they buy. And there will be a smaller trade deficit. Now, the trade deficit is not going to go away. It's just not going to be as large. And of course, the whole tax is based on the trade deficit, right? We have about a $500 billion trade deficit. And a 20% border adjusted tax is supposed to generate $100 billion of revenue for the government because 20% of $500 billion is $100 billion. That's where the money comes from. If the border-adjusted tax actually eliminated the deficit, then there'd be no tax revenue net for the government. So all the revenue they're hoping to achieve wouldn't be there because they would destroy the very deficit that they were trying to tax. But I do believe that the deficit will go down as a result of the tax. So the revenue will not be as high as they anticipate because the minute they start taxing the trade deficit, we'll have a smaller trade deficit. But what I don't agree with economists, that that lower trade deficit will automatically mean that we are going to have a stronger dollar. Not at all. See, the argument is that if foreigners sell less products to America, well, they won't earn as many dollars. But now if they want to buy more products from Americans, they're going to need more dollars. And so they're going to have to go into the marketplace and buy those extra dollars. And all that demand for dollars is going to push up the value of the dollar. But that overlooks the fact that even if foreigners have a smaller trade surplus with America, they still have a surplus. That means they still have more than enough dollars to buy our exports because they're still going to have a trade surplus. What is going to change is the size of the surplus and the amount of money that they recycle into our financial assets because we have a capital account surplus. And as our trade deficit declines, our capital account surplus uh, is going to decline as well. And so what that means is that foreigners are not going to buy as many U.S. treasuries or as many U.S. mortgage-backed securities or as many corporate bonds. Now, of course, in the long run, that's good. 
right? Because that means we're, we're, we're not selling off our assets. We're not going into debt as much. I mean, having a smaller trade deficit in the long run is good. But in the short run, it's going to be very painful because since foreigners will not have as large a trade surplus to recycle into our assets, asset prices are going to fall because there'll be less demand. Bond prices will fall. That means interest rates are going to rise because foreigners will be buying fewer treasuries, fewer corporate bonds. So what does that mean for American consumers? Not only are they paying higher prices for their products because of the border-adjusted sales tax, right? But now they're paying higher interest rates. So the whole economy is going to plunge into recession because we're going to have higher uh, prices, which is going to reduce sales and reduce GDP. We're going to have higher interest rates, which is going to weigh heavily on our bubble economy that has so much debt. So we go into recession. The Fed's got to cut rates. They got to do QE4. That means the dollar plunges even more. So the actual effect of the border adjusted tax is not only going to be that American consumers have to pay higher prices because of the tax, but they're also going to have to pay higher prices because the dollar is going to tank. It's not going to go up. It's going to go down. So instead of negating uh, the effects of the border adjusted tax, they're going to be compounded. And this whole thing is going to implode. Now, that does not mean we shouldn't move towards this type of taxation. In the long run, it's good. But of course, the way the government is going about it, and I've said this before with this border adjusted tax, is asinine. What we need, if we're going to do this, is just across the board tariffs. What we should do is abolish the income tax completely, the corporate income tax. Get rid of it completely. And then maybe if we have to replace it, replace it with a tariff. But I would rather replace it with no taxes. Just cut government spending. Have real cuts to government spending so we can get rid of the corporate income tax. Then let's get rid of the personal income tax. Then maybe we can have a tariff. Because remember, the only reason we have a personal income tax is because we got rid of the tariffs. Right? That's how the government 100 years ago convinced Americans to accept the 16th Amendment. They said, hey, let's get rid of the tariffs that the average person pays and let's impose an income tax that Rockefeller is going to pay. The super rich are going to pay this tax and we'll get rid of the tariffs. But you know what? The average people now are paying much more in income taxes than they ever paid in tariffs. So I say let's get rid of the income tax and get the tariffs back. And an actual tariff would actually put American retailers on a level playing field. Because I said this before, and nobody is talking about this, but not only would the border-adjusted tax accelerate this economic collapse uh, by you know, forcing us to wean ourselves off of ex- imports quicker, right? It's basically like we're being shoved into rehab quicker rather than just going there on our own. But the other problem with this is that it will destroy the American retail industry, which will be disintermediated out of the supply chain because Americans are not going to want to pay a 25% tax if they can avoid it. And the way they avoid it is by shopping online from a foreign retailer or by buying their products directly from foreign manufacturers because all of those products come into the country without the border-adjusted tax. So it will just bankrupt all these retailers. So imagine the biggest employers in the country just going out of business, right? laying everybody off. I mean, how much quicker would we have uh, this, uh, this economic collapse if they, if they impose this border-adjusted tax? And it's not that I'm a fan of the income tax or the corporate income tax, not at all. I just see the problems that will be accelerated. Right? The border-adjusted tax, other than the problem... Uh, for retailers, right? Because it's it's ill-conceived. But apart from that, 
It is not creating the problems. It is simply bringing the problems to a head that much quicker. Because eventually, foreigners are going to figure out on their own that trading with America is a losing deal, that they are losing on trade because they are giving us real products and we're giving them worthless IOUs. And in fact, I mentioned this before. Oh, and I, uh, in fact, I forgot to talk about it then. So as foreigners are not recycling their trade surpluses into U.S. financial assets, right, they are just getting more imports for their exports. But they still haven't started to cash in their uncashed IOUs. Imagine what happens when foreigners decide that they want to cash in trillions of dollars of IOUs, right? All these treasuries that are basically like checks, right? We paid for our imports and we wrote a check. And foreigners have just held on to that check. They haven't, they haven't taken it to our bank account yet. They haven't cashed it in. What happens when foreigners decide that they're going to go on a shopping spree and they're going to sell trillions and trillions of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities and, um, and, and um, uh, corporate bonds, and they're going to use the money to buy up products that we're exporting, right? That's when they're collecting, right? They've been accumulating IOUs so that they can eventually use them. So we could have a massive uh, trade surplus, and the dollar can be imploding because foreigners don't need to earn any dollars. They've already earned them all. They're stockpiling them. they got trillions of them. These foolish economists who believe that if we have a smaller trade deficit, that foreigners are going to be forced to buy more dollars means that their, their appetite for U.S. assets is not going to be diminished. The only reason they're buying up all these assets is because they have these huge trade surpluses with us. And if the surpluses were smaller, they wouldn't just maintain their same level of investment. They would just invest less. And of course, even if the surpluses went away, they still don't need to export to us because they already accumulated massive uh, dollar savings. I mean, these are we're a debtor nation. There are other countries who are creditor nations. They would start cashing in their credits. You know, and in fact, as interest rates rise, which they will do as inflation rises and as the dollar falls, our current account deficit can skyrocket even as our trade deficit is falling because now we have to pay foreigners higher rates of interest on the U.S. treasuries and other bonds that they continue to hold on to. And so they're going to get more dollars, not because they had to earn them from us by selling us products, but because we're going to have to pay them higher interest on their bond. And the same thing if they own real estate, they could raise the rents. And now we have to send them uh, bigger checks to pay rent or they collect more dividends on the U.S. stocks that they bought. I mean, foreigners don't have to earn dollars by selling us products. They just clip coupons. They just cash the rent checks or cash the dividend checks. That is the benefit of being a creditor nation. You don't have to work. America is a gigantic debtor. We have squandered all of our wealth. And so this idea that this border tax is just going to be a windfall uh, for the U.S. government because it's going to cost consumers nothing, but it's going to load up the Treasury with all this free money. It just shows you how low the bar is, how little. Because there's, there's complete agreement. Almost every economist agrees that this is what's going to happen. And they are all 100% wrong. Now, I got to uh, end this podcast again by risking a bunch of thumbs down and talking a, about Bitcoin. And, you know, last time I talked about Bitcoin, I said, well, maybe it's falling into a trading range. And it looks like it already may be breaking down from that trading range. As I'm recording this podcast uh, late Saturday morning, Bitcoin is at 963. The low is 950. We're actually lower 
than the low from the day that the Bitcoin ETF uh, was rejected. So we've taken out the low end of that range. So if we don't hold here and we break down, then we're having a much bigger decline in Bitcoin. I mean, maybe down to 750 or maybe down as low as uh, even below 500, this leg down. To me, we really could be forming a top here in Bitcoin. And, you know, this is there's been a lot of volatility, you know, ever since uh, that guy on CNBC said that Bitcoin was less volatile than gold. I mean, the volatility has skyrocketed in the digital currency and all sorts of things seem to be happening now. I'm reading articles about the U.S. cracking down, trying to get tax records from Coinbase or whatever this uh, uh, exchange is. They want to get all the records on, on people to see if they're you know, tax evasion and the European Union now is trying to force, uh, they want to get all, you know, know your customer. They want to know anybody who buys Bitcoin or uses Bitcoin. They want to get their name. They want to get their passport. They, they want to really crack down on the anonymity, which of course is a gr- good portion of the appeal. China's cracking down too. And of course, a lot of the demand for Bitcoins was coming from Chinese nationals trying to get money out of China illegally and circumventing their uh, currency laws. And so governments are starting to uh, crack down, and that is also working against Bitcoin. But also, uh, I talked a lot about, hey, you know, and I mentioned this with my debate on CNBC, which if you haven't seen it, you know, it's there on, on my YouTube channel, very short debate. The guy talked over me, you know, all the time. But one of the things I said was, hey, how do you know that Bitcoin, even if it's going to work, even if everything you're saying is true about digital currencies of the future, how do you know that the digital currency of the future is Bitcoin? I mean, what if Bitcoin turns out to be MySpace? What if a Facebook comes along and replaces it? Right? And of course, Facebook may be replaced by something else that we don't even know about yet. Right. I mean, who knows? Right. Who knows? Will Facebook be, you know, be around in 10 years or will people be using be using something else? But. That was my point. Now, all of a sudden, you got this other digital currency, Ethereum, that is really stealing a lot of Bitcoin's thunder. Because all of a sudden, you know, this currency has moved up. It moved up from about, I don't know, $20 for one uh, Ethereum coin to up, up to $50 in the last few you know, few days. Now it's starting to plunge again. Now it's back down to 34 It's down 20, 22% today. So, I mean, this maybe the Ethereum bubble is already bursting too. But my point is, that maybe Ethereum is better than Bitcoin. Maybe it solves some of the problems that Bitcoin has. And if now there's another digital currency, I mean, the market cap on Ethereum, even after this 22% decline today, as I'm, as I'm recording this, is $3 billion. That's still a high market cap. It's $3 billion. Bitcoin's market cap is still five times higher at, at, at $15 billion. But, I mean, what if it's better? I mean, why use Bitcoin when you can use Ethereum? Now, you know, I went to their website and they, you know, they, you know, they try to uh, ingratiate themselves to the Bitcoiners. They're, they're saying, oh, we're not, you know, we're not anti-Bitcoin. We're not competing. We can exist alongside. Obviously, they don't want to alienate the Bitcoiners because they want the Bitcoiners to buy Ethereum, too. And a lot of people are. A lot of people now are buying both. But it proves my point that if Ethereum is as good as Bitcoin, it's going to bite into Bitcoin's market share. Right. And if it's better than Bitcoin, it's going to destroy their market share. I mean, how many people still use Facebook and MySpace? It's not like Facebook and MySpace coexisted. Facebook came along and MySpace went away. Right. And that was the same thing with search engines. I mean, I suppose some people still use Yahoo to search. I don't. I only use Google. 
There are some things I use Yahoo for, but one of them is not searching. I never search on Yahoo. I only search on, on, on Google. Now, at one point, I did search on Yahoo until Google came along. And, and then I never used Yahoo again. And, and so if uh, Ethereum is better, is a better digital currency than Bitcoin, then why would anybody use Bitcoin? Just use Ethereum. And of course, what if something comes along that's even better than Ethereum? Again, there is an unlimited number of these digital currencies that can be created. There is no limit. There is no supply shortage of digital currencies, right? But there is a limit to how much gold can be mined from the earth because gold supply is limited by nature. And we know gold works as money because it's worked for thousands of years. And again, because you have something like gold money that solves the problems that gold has that Bitcoin tried to solve in that it makes gold a better medium of exchange. It makes it more liquid. It makes it easier to spend, easier to earn, easier to transact in. It's gold money. It's the Internet that solves all the problems, not these digital currencies. We don't need digital fiat currencies. We need real money. We need digital money. And that's what gold money enables. Digital money, not government, not fiat, outside the banking system. And you don't have to run the risk of massive collapse where you've got Ethereum, you know, down 21% today. Or, you know, Bitcoin is down as I'm speaking. It's down 11% today. Now it's at 955. The low is still 950. But it was down about that much yesterday. I mean, look at the high low. I mean, yesterday... Uh, uh, Bitcoin was over 1,200. Remember all the talk, oh, Bitcoin is higher than gold. Gold is now 1,230 and Bitcoin is 950. I mean, it is, it's collapsed relative to gold in just the last week. And, you know, look, the last time Bitcoin collapsed and it went down to a couple of hundred, it got revived with another wave of speculation. Maybe it's not going to happen next time. The next time it goes down, it might go down for the count. So all you guys that are out there that want to thumbs down my video and tell me I don't get, I don't get it, I just don't get it, you know, I'm, I'm too biased, right, because I happen to have a gold company. Look, if I believed it was going to work, I'm honest enough to say it, right? I always evolve my businesses based on what I believe, right? If I was very bullish on the U.S. economy... I would be telling people to buy U.S. stocks. You know, it's easier to tell people to buy U.S. stocks. It's easier to just ride a bubble than to tell people to do what's right. Right. So I never compromise my integrity to make money. I want to make money, but I want to make money by preserving my integrity. And you know what? In the long run, I believe that's the best way to make money because the market rewards honest businessmen, people that do what's right. right. That's how you build a brand. That's how you build customer loyalty. And so if I really thought that people should be loading up on Bitcoins, hey, I'd load up on myself. I don't own any of them. I'd buy them. So it's not because I have some kind of vested interest and my judgment isn't clouded. It's the people who I think who are in this cult, who have been conned by, just like the people who bought all these dot-com stocks in the 1990s and, you know, they couldn't see the forest for the trees, right? They, they actually believed all this because psychologically they wanted to believe it. And, you know... People want to believe that, you know, they're going to get rich owning Bitcoin. They don't want somebody raining on their parade. I get it. I know. But I care about the people listening to my podcast. I don't want you to lose money. And, you know, hey, if you bought your Bitcoins at lower prices, hey, $900, $1,000 of Bitcoin is a high price. And you know what? Even if you were foolish enough to jump into the market and you paid eleven dollars or $1,200, you know what? You could take your losses. Now, is it possible that we'll have another rally and you'll get another chance to sell? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. You know, maybe we've t- maybe we're going to go straight down. Maybe we're going to rally. 
but lighten up, sell some, you get lucky, sell the next rally. Even if you have to cut your losses, you know what? A small loss is your best friend because a small loss is the way to avoid a big loss, right? I'd rather take a small loss than a big loss. And of course, if you sell your Bitcoins and you buy some gold, you can make back what you lose on Bitcoin with what you gain in gold. So, and you can go to goldmoney.com if you don't already have an account and you can use your Bitcoins directly to buy gold on gold money. And now instead of having digital fiat, you have digital gold, you have real money. And it's not just digital gold because you can order the gold and have it delivered to you whenever you want it. So it's physical gold that you own, but you can transfer the ownership digitally to any merchant or any friend or any individual around the world. So that is the solution, not, not these various cryptocurrencies. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal's strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.